Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert-Kennedy. And this is Teddy, the Wonder Dog. Yay! Uh, today, our guest is Jason Friesen. He's the founder and director of Trek Medics, a 501c3 registered NGO. And they are dedicated to creating or improving emergency medical systems in communities without reliable access to emergency care through innovative mobile phone technologies. And they uh, make a point to note, they make their services available uh, in many countries to all communities, regardless of race, religion, or creed. And today we talked about the future of emergency medical systems and disaster relief in the age of climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We can talk about you know, clean energy and space travel and carbon capture all we want. Right. Uh, but the effects uh, are already real and already here. And mm-hmm. people like Jason are, are dealing with it every single day. Yep. Brian, what'd you do today? I overtipped a waiter. Question. Was pretty, it yourself? Pretty good. No. Damn it. Question. Do you think Jason saved a life before our podcast today? Oh, it's very likely. The odds are pretty damn good, right? What, what time is it in Costa Rica? Same as here? I have no idea. Okay, I don't know if you know about time zones. <laughs> That's not my business, man. <laughs> he He's, yeah, he's doing pretty unbelievable Definitely work. at least one before or after. Oh, yeah, right now. Right? Not as, during. As, as we record this as introduction. This. Sure, sure. Teddy, what'd you do today? Besides look so cute. Right, besides, he literally snored through half the episode. <laughs> We have editors for that. Well, you know what he did though? More than a fucking cat. Did. Don't you don't need to come cat bash here. Are you a cat guy? Yeah. Oh proudly. Devastating. Come on. Really? First he shaved his beard, now he's a cat guy. What's wrong with this guy? <laughs> Quick, name three benefits of cats. Uh uh support system. Oh, wrong. They don't offer cats are monsters. They're not my they're Listen. Cats would kill you if they could. They get a bad rap because some of them are shitheads, but there are some nice cats, wonderful cats, and they're so they're so funny and they're and they're and they, you know like they're they're sort of stuck up but like in a fun way. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> fucking cats. Um, this is a friendly reminder that our online store is now open. Uh, we've got t-shirts and new t-shirts. Uh, we've got coffee containers that are great. Yeah, they are. And we've got hoodies. Uh, they're really comfortable, and those are great. Uh, perfect timing for us, because it's going to be <laughs> fucking summer. But there's quite a bunch of hipsters who don't care that it's 90 degrees, and they insist on wearing them. So we'll just provide them and cater to those people. Yeah, let them be available for them with their scarves and their boots. And the what are the big beanies that hang off the back of their heads? To oh, yeah. Their top do they have knots? a special name? Are there still top knots? Oh, yeah. Did you do one? For a little bit. You no, did? No, not a top. I didn't, it wasn't long enough to do top, but I did the... Uh, oh, what do you call God. it? The, yeah. Well, we all go through phases. You know, it's like not a six phase months ago that I'm a cat guy. That sh- should be a phase. A regret you have later in life. Going, can you believe? I regret the ponytail thing. I do not regret being a cat guy. Okay. We should make underwear. What? A- for the should store? We? Yeah. Really? Come on. Like, what's the me undies? I've never tried those. I see the ads a lot. They're everywhere. It's just a bunch of butts. I wore a pair of briefs recently. What? Like you don't normally? No, I'm a boxers guy. Are you a briefs guy? Full on boxers or boxer briefs? No, I wear boxers. The loose shorts? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> what? I didn't know people did that. Still? I, I do. Oh, this is interesting. Maybe I don't know. I don't pay attention to what other people do. I will tell you though, the, the briefs, they were fun. They were constricting, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but they were enjoyable. But I will say you have to have the right material. What, right? what was yours? They got to be of? breathable. Mine are, they're Patagonia. 
you know, so uh-huh. they're made from uh, recycled <laughs> unicorns of and course. repurposed, sustainably harvested uh, seawater. Um, can I wear? Can I wear them one day? What are you, what's your brand? What's the the you know the Hanes? Han- just Hanes? Yeah, it's like wearing cardboard on your nuts. No, 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 no. Or, they're uh, very comfortable. Really? I wear briefs, baby. But you know, small ones. <laughs> but I, I wear I wear tight pants, so it's hard to you even do wear, wear a boxer. Boxer brief. I can't wear uh, all pants are tight on me, but accidentally because I have a huge ass. You've you've got a very nice lower half, Brian. (laughs) Yes, some controversy recently about Asgardia. Yes. Um, yes. First of all, didn't know it was a space kingdom. What did that's what I've been calling it this whole time? No, have you? I don't know. Here's the update from Gizmodo. (laughs) The self-proclaimed space kingdom of Asgardia is currently limited to a glitchy website. We knew that. Yep. And a satellite orbiting the Earth, quote unquote, about the size of a loaf of bread. But Asgardia wants to be much more than just another micronation. It aims to join the United Nations and eventually send its citizens, Brian, to lower <laughs> Earth orbit while they live on habitable platforms and defend the planet. I did not know this. You're defend. It, we're we're defenders space of the planet. Threats. Yeah. Okay. All of this is supposed to happen after Asgardia establishes a parliament from the more than 180,000 people who have registered online as Asgardian citizens. A lax process and practice requires little more than filling out basic personal details and accepting Asgardia's constitution. How's that going? Listen, have you tried to start a whole new nation, let alone a space kingdom? Like, it's going to be hard at first. You know why? It's, there's a reason it's called space kingdom, because they continue. Asgardia's eccentric founder stands accused by some of his mm-hmm. fellow Asgardians mm-hmm. of harboring an authoritarian streak. <laughs> and apparently also, like, secretly uh, handpicking who's going to run uh, the, the nation so that, you know, they could do his bidding. Asgardia's first elections have been plagued by issues ranging from a buggy website to poor vetting procedures. And I got to be honest. I mean, yeah, that's a problem everywhere these days. Yeah. Not just these uh, child, not just Asgardia like, space nations. <sighs> but apparently there were some candidates handpicked by Asgardia's ruler to win. Boom. So they could secretly do his bidding when parliament officially begins. I was not one of those people. <laughs> No? Shocker. So interesting. But you have a podcast. Yes. Um, And they said, quote unquote, we brought with us all the old reflexes of Earth politics. It's disappointing. Yeah, that's one of my fellow uh, uh, citizens, Nisam. Had to see that coming, though. You know, you go you go into a, something like this uh, with uh, blinders on, I think, because you're so excited about defending the planet and living in uh, lower Earth orbit. Cart before the horse a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Uh-huh. Listen. Did they think that people were going to act differently? I don't know. I don't have all the questions, answers to the questions. Question. Yeah. <laughs> it says they wanted these people to do his bidding once parliament is enacted. Right. Great. What are the three things you think he would want them to do immediately after, I guess, making a constitution? Well, Go. I don't, I'm not, I don't Go. know this man. I'm not sure what his, you know, motivations are. You signed up to be a member of a kingdom with 180,000 yeah. other people. Yeah. And you don't know who the leader is? I don't know. The kingdom. He's the founder of the whole, you you know, he's not the leader. He's not the director. He's not going to tell me what to do. He's going to. Sweetheart, that's how an authoritarian, (laughs) that's how a kingdom works. This is all hearsay, okay? We don't know. Oh, because somebody on Gizmodo wrote an article. Gizmodo. I'll write an article. Let's see it. That's great. We'll put it on the blog. Um, all right. Well, we'll get updates there as yeah. to whether Brian listens to the king of the kingdom of Asgardia that he doesn't know what he signed up for. 
It just seemed, it seems like it's going to be a good time. Seemed like it was going to be that way. Imagine it's all started from a loaf of bread. That's what we'll get to say. Yeah. And that's what they said about wild, wild country too. And look how that's working. Oh yeah. That wasn't good. Yeah. Not great, Bob. (laughs) All right. Let's go talk to Jason. All right. Our guest today is Jason Friesen, and together we're going to discuss the future of emergency medical systems and disaster relief in the age of climate change, because we're here. Uh, Jason, (laughs) welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Quinn. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. For sure. Jason, tell us real quick uh, who you are and what you do. Right. So I am a paramedic by training, and uh, I am the founder and executive director of a non-governmental organization called Trek medics international and the long and short of what we do is that we improve emergency medical systems in communities with unreliable access to emergency care and transport so Mm -hmm. our kind of catchy uh tagline is 911 where there is none but that's so good that doesn't it's great i love it too but it doesn't (laughs) translate very well in countries where 911 is not not (laughs) which isn't that where the majority of your work is in other countries yeah exactly so that is definitely a north american centric uh tagline really what it is is we improve emergency medical care anywhere anywhere there's a mobile phone signal Got it. Um, so and you're completely maybe, unimportant is what you're saying. <laughs> maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about uh, exactly how that works and how you guys work and, and what you mean by anywhere there's a mobile phone signal. Right. So most people don't recognize or aren't aware of this. I should say most people in the wealthiest nations mm-hmm. aren't aware of this, that when you leave uh, the top, let's just say the OECD nations, the top 25 wealthiest countries, most other countries in the world don't have a simple number to call like 911 in case of emergency. And as it turns out, you're oftentimes left on your own. If there's a car wreck, if a woman goes to childbirth, if you are on vacation and you get food poisoning or, you know, whatever other emergency medical situation that could arise in, I would estimate 80% of the world's population has no way to call help when and where it's needed. And uh, the reason for this, there are many, many reasons for this, but largely what it comes down to is uh, communications. And uh, historically, if you think about like, let's just talk about the United States, because that's Mm -hmm. that's common reference point here. We started building our emergency medical systems uh, formally back in the 60s. And uh, they started using radios and then they started, uh, you know, integrating landline connections to talk to people. And they started bringing in uh, CV radios or different kinds of communications tools. But all of them were based on communicating with an ambulance and they were receiving calls from people who were calling via landlines. So we built up this huge infrastructure that was very largely based on landline Uh, communication systems. And in low and middle income countries, very few of them had the penetration that we did in the United States and Canada uh, for landline uh, telephones, meaning in the United States, every house had at least one landline phone, right? Mm -hmm. All office buildings, everybody had one. In low and middle income countries, that wasn't really the situation. So we have this huge like communications infrastructure and technologies that were built up but they were built up largely for wealthy countries. And so 
then all of a sudden what happened was in the 21st century came along and around 2010 or so, all of a sudden now everybody's got mobile phones. And so these countries that formerly didn't have the landline systems and therefore couldn't really implement the 911 systems that we used in the U.S., now everybody's carrying around mobile phones. So they've basically leapfrogged, as I like to say, over the landline systems. And now there's mobile phone penetration up to, I think it's something like over 80% of the world's population now has access to mobile phones. Mm -hmm. So this is where we've come in and we've said, look, the big problem was always communications, right? If you don't know where the emergency happens and when it happens, it's very hard to notify and coordinate emergency resources in the area. Mm-hmm. But now that everybody's carrying around mobile phones, it really changes the, the the scenario, the playing field, so to speak. And so what we've done is we've created this text message-based emergency dispatching platform called Beacon. And the way it works is very simple. Uh, we started in the Dominican Republic where now there are multiple communities using the software. And the way it works is, for example, somebody will see a car wreck at the bridge, right? We'll just say there's a car wreck at the bridge. Mm-hmm. They will call the local fire department and say there's a car wreck at the bridge. Whoever answers the phone at the fire department takes that information, enters it into our platform, and then sends it out as a text message to all of the trained responders in the community. So everybody who's been trained and registered gets this text message on their phone that says there's an accident at the bridge. Can you help? If the answer is yes, tell us how long it'll take you to get there. So let's say we send this message to 45 people. We don't want 45 people showing up at the bridge. Sure. So as people respond saying, I'm five minutes away, I'm 10 minutes away, I'm 20 minutes away, uh, Beacon will basically triage the responses that come in. And it'll say, you, yes, go right now. You, you're too far Uh, You over there, hold on, we might need you, but if we can find somebody closer quickly, we're going to take them instead. Wow. And so it triages until it meets whatever quota it's looking for. And the dispatcher can say, I want five people, you know, I want. And and is that triage done manually or is it uh, sorted by a system? It's all automated. Yeah, it's it's an algorithm. So and that's that's really a big change right there, honestly, is that if you look at the way we do it in the United States and I'm being a little bit reductive here. But if you look at what we do in the United States with dispatching, it's very much this puppet master approach, right? Where Mm -hmm. the dispatcher is like getting on the radio and saying, unit 415, you go. Unit 416, we don't need you. You know, and kind of moving chess pieces or pieces around on the game board, so to speak. Honestly, that's a lot of legacy. That's just legacy uh, methods that we're doing because of the technology that they built these systems with. But now everybody's using mobile phones so we built it into the platform so that it, it automates that triage and it'll pick whoever's closest and whoever's got the most appropriate resources, right? Sure. And that, what that means is uh, if five people on motorcycles say we can go and we're only looking for five people, well, what if there's somebody who needs to be transported? A motorcycle is not going to do it for them. So our software will say, okay, the fifth motorcycle, we're not going to take you we're going to find somebody who's got a patient transport vehicle, like an ambulance, sure. if they've got it, or a taxi, if they don't, or even, quite honestly, a pickup truck. So yeah, so that's all built into it. That may, I mean, it makes so much sense. Um, and, and I assume your system, and and because of the places you've rolled it out, doesn't require, uh, quote unquote, smartphones. It sounds a lot like the way banking has rolled out uh, across Africa. 
because like you said, of the penetration of some form of mobile phone, uh, you know, they cut out brick and mortar entirely, but these people for the first time have access to, to banking functions and to pay their bills and to microloans and things like that. And it's changed the continent in a lot of ways. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. When we started with Beacon, it was originally, so the whole point was that it needed to be uh, accessible to the most number of people. And the best way to do that was SMS. And at the time, the countries we were working in, there weren't a whole lot of smartphones. Over the past couple of years, though, that's changed really quickly. Sure. And uh, last year, we got a so lucky to get have gotten a grant from Twilio, which is an mm-hmm. internet kind of text message based company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they gave us a grant to build uh, the mobile app version. So now if you've got a smartphone, you can use this with push notifications and you receive, you know, in the app, you receive the alerts and all of that. Uh, but if you don't have a smartphone or you don't have internet connection, then you can switch it to SMS and go back to the SMS version. Mm-hmm. So it's all that way. Damn, nice. I love it. Well, thank you for the the background on that. I think that's going to help uh, illustrate for everybody sort of the context uh, for where you're coming from in our conversation today. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's let's set up our conversation for today. Um, we, we are big believers in questions, uh, and because uh, questions demand answers and, and answers uh, that are actionable, and that's exactly what we need right now is uh, uh, things that Quinn and I and everybody listening and everybody out there can do uh, to help help people like you. So. Um, uh, we're going to get down to some uh, uh, specific uh, steps that everyone can take uh, to to make changes in our, in our crazy little world. So, uh, Jason, we start with one uh, mildly provocative but fun, important question to really get the heart of why you're here today. And, and of course, here it means existentially and also on our podcast. Uh, so instead of saying, uh, you know, tell us your life story, we like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> Why am I vital? Yep, be, you be specifically. Bold, be honest. I don't know if I'd ever say I'm vital. I think that I could be replaced quite easily, but I think the role that I'm filling at the moment is vital because there aren't a lot of people focusing on emergency medical systems. And when I say that, I mean pre-hospital emergency care. Like, how do you get people to the hospital on a daily basis, right? There's, Mm -hmm. when you look at NGOs, the word emergency response can get thrown around and used in all sorts of things. Sure. Um, But when, like as a paramedic or EMT or firefighter, any kind of first responder, when you think of emergency response, we we typically think of the day-to-day stuff, you know, the daily routine emergency emergencies, the small scale disasters. Whereas when you look at NGOs and international aid and humanitarian aid, when they're talking about emergency response, they're talking about these big catastrophic things, like whether it's a hurricane or whether it's an Ebola breakout. And my whole philosophy has been that as, and this is coming from a paramedic, is that if if your community can't reliably respond to a car wreck Mm -hmm. or a woman in childbirth, then you don't have much hope when the big one comes. And so I think the role that I'm feeling right now is vital because we're focusing on building these community systems, like true community resilience, so that when those big events happen, they've got the infrastructure in place to deal with it. Because people ask me all the time, well, 
how's Beacon going to change in a disaster? Right. You know, like what is, what does Beacon do for us in a disaster? And the answer is it does exactly the same. It would do in your day-to-day operations. It just allows you to do it at a bigger scale. Right. Sure. So think of like a, in a, practice, a hurricane. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's not coming from nothing. Right. Exactly. And, and how do emergency operations change? What's the, how does the role of a, ambulance personnel, like, you know, a paramedic or an EMT, how does their role change between their day-to-day operations and after a hurricane? Uh, They're working harder. They're Mm -hmm. doing, you know, they're still picking up patients. They're treating them. They're stabilizing them. They're transporting them, but they're doing it at a, likely at a much higher rate. And they've got a whole lot more obstacles to overcome, Mm -hmm. but their job is still the same. But this is what they do. And this is what yes. this is what Beacon is here for. It's almost like exactly. the, the ridiculous action movie quote: "We've been preparing for this day our entire lives." <laughs> um, exactly. It's it, you just turn the volume up. Is really sure. what happened. Sure. All right. So let's establish some context for today's question, then, which we've uh, kind of talked around a little bit. So we do a little fun thing called Context One Hundred One with Professor Brian. Uh, <laughs> it's it's horribly oversimplified dangerously off course at times and and sometimes uh wrong but that's why we've got our resident paramedic uh, emergency medical systems operative here to correct us uh so just a reminder we are not uh professional airline pilots um so brian talk to us today absolutely i got some stats here for you get ready all right so the number of Americans registering for uh for disaster aid jumped tenfold last year in 2017 which is 4.7 million Americans, uh, about a half, one and a half percent of the population uh, registered. Um, We spent over $300 billion in the U.S. alone, uh, and most of that's on on U.S. taxpayers. Three hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, and Maria, uh, collectively affected an area uh, of about 8% of the U.S. population. Harvey set a record for rainfall, and then the wildfires in California were some of of the costliest Down the street. Yeah, yeah. No big deal. There were 16 disasters last year that totaled over a billion dollars in damage each. In the U.S. In the U.S. only. Right. And all this all happening in the third hottest year ever, uh, with all 50 states having temps above average. Right. And again, uh, you know, this is just in the U.S. we're talking here. We, right. We, we can afford to pay these bills, mm-hmm. um, even if FEMA has effectively removed climate change from its planning, uh, right. <laughs> despite uh, uh, despite the fact that we should obviously be spending, you know, at least an equal amount trying to prevent or, or mitigate them. And we can't prevent them completely, right. of course, but, you know, they're getting worse. The disasters, not FEMA. I mean, I guess FEMA is at times, but... Right. Right. To be clear, the disasters are getting worse. And uh, what about other countries, developing countries, uh, right. low-lying countries, um, or, or more specific to our conversation today, countries with non-existent or, or per, poor emergency medical systems, right. uh, like the Dominican, you know, still reeling from disasters from fucking half a decade ago. Right. Places, places where, where Jason isn't and, and have to build up from nothing. There's no beacon to, to practice from. Over 80% of the, what did he say? What did you say, Jason? Over 80% of the whole world doesn't even have a number to call? It seems crazy to me. That's, that's my back of the envelope estimate, but right. I stand by it. It's <laughs> pretty gnarly. Yeah, so, so uh, heat waves have grown uh, uh, more numerous uh, and hotter. Higher temps lead to more drought, obviously. Uh, crops are dying. Uh, there's no water. Um, hurricanes have become far wetter, leading to, to much more flooding. But you can't drink that water. That's water that you don't want to drink. And tell us why. <laughs> uh, well, flooding means more waterborne and, and vector-borne diseases. Typhoid fever, cholera, 
hepatitis A, malaria, uh, dang, uh, uh, yellow fever, West Nile fever. I mean, it's ugh, just saying them is gross. And this is the new reality. And while it might seem like, you know, these things are uh, freak occurrences, uh, most of them are seasonal and, and some places are already being and will continue to be affected more than others. It doesn't feel like <laughs> the future we were promised, <laughs> right? You know, it's like uh, flying cars. Nope, we got devastating floods, cholera, uh, cholera, wildfires, <sighs> and um, I guess San Francisco is electric scooters. Yeah, electric scooters don't prevent hurricanes that I know of. Or typhoid. Yeah, but I'm not a doctor. Right. It, all right. Look, it's not all <laughs> doom and gloom, though, right? No, there's tremendous progress on, on the clean energy front. And, uh, you know, we're we're not all going to die. Um, T- Teddy's going to, super dog, Teddy's going to make it. He's so cute. Yeah. Uh, but people are being affected, and, and we need to talk about how uh, uh, we can best help them. Right. And it does start, it's super helpful when it starts on a day-to-day basis. And these people yeah. that are on the ground doing these things and know the country and the land and the people and the uh, local governmental obstacles to be practiced. Uh, at that when, uh, like Jason said, the volume gets turned up. So with that, for some context, thank you, Brian. Um, let's uh, focus on our topic this week. What's the future of emergency, emergency medical systems and disaster relief look like in the age of climate change? So Jason, t- where are you today? We were talking about this before we got started. I am in Costa Rica. And is that a home base for you guys, or is that uh, sort of the next uh, place of operations? So we are working on programs here with uh, several different partners. And Costa Rica is, they're kind of like Indonesia, you know, in that they get, they got a little bit of every disaster threat possible. They have earthquakes, they have active volcanoes. Last year, they had a devastating hurricane. Mm. Uh, They're also very much, you know, surrounded on two sides, at least by water. So they're Mm -hmm. very much affected by sea level changes. It's funny. I I talked about this on our uh, last episode, which will have come out by the time this does. But I I just recently spent some time down the U.S. and the British Virgin Islands and um, with some family lives down there and, and spent my whole life going down there. And they're obviously all still recovering from from two category five hurricanes in eight days um eight months later and you know they um, my friends mentioned uh oh and we also had a, a small earthquake last week and you forget that they're on the puerto rican fault line it's just like give me a break man so as we understand it your 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 gig is primarily providing and, and building up a, what you call beacon emergency medical systems in rural and developing areas and i, I want to talk about how the changing climate affects your operations and your thoughts and plans for the future. Talk, talk to me how about it's, it has evolved and will continue to evolve over time. Yeah. So I think that last hurricane season was for anybody who, you know, is invested in this kind of stuff involved in a disaster response and whatnot and emergency medical systems last year was kind of a bellwether of things yet to come. Right. Both, the good and the bad. The bad being, as we were just talking about, there's a whole lot of more of this going on and it's not looking like it's going to slow down. Uh, but the good, which also was mentioned, is the number of people who are getting involved. And I think that this is very much because of mobile phone technology. You know, like I was saying before, in terms of it used to be, well, in many places it still is, that there's this uh, you know, centralized call center, the 911 call center, where you have dispatchers who are largely commu- c- communicating with 
professional responders, full-time, you know, or volunteer, but trained, equipped responders. And that has kind of created a gatekeeper scenario. So here's an example. Harvey happens when a city gets flooded, everything gets flooded, including the fire departments, the police departments, the ambulance stations, they get flooded too. Mm -hmm. So then if the 911 call center isn't flooded, it's definitely overwhelmed with calls for help. And very quickly, their resources are outstripped and they can't do it. So then you have things like the Cajun Navy show up with their, with their airboats, with their swamp boats. And, and it's like, well, these are not trained official quote unquote responders. The beautiful thing that happened in Harvey was they're like, get them out there. We need their help. But the challenge was how do you incorporate them into the formal response system? You know, the, the, the formal communication system. And so that's, that's what we're trying to work on now as well. And we actually just got a grant uh, from Cisco, from Cisco, Tech, uh, Cisco Systems. Mm-hmm. And what they wanted us to do was they asked us if we could make Beacon disaster friendly, right? How much and help? So, are, are they just providing a grant or are they, or are they providing networking know-how? I'm curious. Yes. So they're providing, uh, they've provided a cash grant, but they've also pledged uh, networking connections. They've put us in touch with a lot of their other existing partners. And the promotional aspect of it, too, getting the word out and spreading it about what we're doing and, and how we're trying to help community-based services uh, prepare for these, prepare and respond to these types of events. And wow. so what it means to make Beacon disaster-friendly is right now, the only way you can get up and using Beacon is if you talk to our staff and they sign you up for the account, they set it up, they give you access, and we're in the way. We're the bottleneck, right? So what we're doing right now is we're changing it so that any agency, organization, or quite honestly, individual will be able to come to the website, register an account, and then they'll be able to learn how to use Beacon, design, test, launch, and be ready to scale their own emergency communication system by themselves in less than 30 minutes. So it's essentially a do-it-yourself 911 system. And so the goal with yeah. this is that, as again, as long as there's a mobile phone connection, they'll be able to launch this system and start dispatching the community responders, the, you know, the, uh, what they call the emergent groups, the mm-hmm. volunteers, the spontaneous volunteers, um, and they'll be able to register them onto the platform and start dispatching them as if they were a formal resource that was always getting dispatched, and- as long as it's got a phone. And, and, you know, what's interesting about that is, and, and I was down in Houston with family doing a, a bunch of recovery stuff for a little bit. And, and again, so much credit to the folks like the Cajun Navy and all those people who stepped up, but 2008 to 17 provided so many incredible digital tools to sort of crowdsource help. But again, it was all sort of one-off things and, and, and newfangled pieces that were, that were pulled together by a variety of of folks and, and apps to, to source that volunteer coverage. But, and, and so enormous credit to all the people and all the things and the services who contributed their time and efforts to, to make that happen and did help. But when you can build something like this, that, that other communities can use almost off the shelf, it becomes a system that people know, or at least the, the setup is a little more recognizable, which hopefully 
makes it a little more efficient and easier to get off the ground. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not as much of a learning curve. It's just like, we got it, we unbox it, we use it here. And obviously every area and and disaster is going to have its own complications, but you know, you can, you can plan for that and adapt those things. But you know, the more it's sort of off the shelf, theoretically, the easier it is and more efficient it is for everyone. Yes, you're 100% correct. So I'm on a, uh, as a side thing, since my paramedic ambulance days, I'm on a federal disaster response team uh, called DMAT, Disaster Medical Assistance Team. And we got deployed to uh, Texas right before Harvey hit. Mm-hmm. And, and we're a team of like 75 people. So big, you know, team, we set up uh, basically field hospitals. And because we're a federal team and a large one, you know, it takes a little bit more time to move these resources around. So right after landfall of Harvey, I was, we were in a hotel waiting for our orders and I was watching on TV and I'm seeing all of these, you know, volunteer responders popping up. And my question to myself is how are they getting dispatched? Like who's communicating, who's telling them where to go. Right. And what they're doing is they're using, like you said, they're using off the shelf things like WhatsApp or Facebook messenger. There was a specific app that everyone used that I became so reliant on. Now I've totally blacked out huh. on what it was. Zello. Is it Zello? I think it was Zello. Yeah. And it was incredible. Right. I mean, you could tune right in and, and, and we were just wow. driving around a U-Haul truck that, that we had, uh, I'd used to pick up supplies from wiped out of Walmart and a target and took them all down from Dallas. And then we just kept it. And we literally, Zello directed us to just people's homes who needed bailing yes. out. And, and that That's became wild. the thing. Uh, right. And everybody knew what, in two days, every, even if you weren't tech savvy, everybody knew what Zello was. Damn. Yes. And so that that's the beauty of these uh, technologies is they're out there and they you can put them together and make something out of them. The the problem with WhatsApp, because whenever we talk to anybody we talk to these days in developing countries in particular, they're using either Zello or WhatsApp to right. communicate, but they weren't designed specifically for this. Right. Sure. They exactly. were designed to provide uh, a capability but they weren't necessarily designed to be implemented in these scenarios. And the Mm -hmm. problem with them is that they don't scale very well. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we meet a fire department in Mexico, let's say, and they have five to 10 responders and they respond to one incident, two incidents a day, then we say, you know what, you don't really need our software. WhatsApp is going to be fine for you, a chat group. Sure. But if you turn that into tens or hundreds of responders with multiple incidents going on at the same time, then an open chat group is chaos. You know, it's just an unwieldy beast. Same thing with Zello. You may have, there's a lot of backup going on. There's a lot of cross chatter. And so what we've said is with, with our platform is, look, we, we're not going to ever re- replace radios, but what we can do with Beacon is drastically reduce the need for radios by getting rid of the redundant communications. Sure. And, and, and like you said, also, you know, like you said, that department, that small town department might not need it right now. But let's say, because, again, everyone is going to be touched by one of these disasters at some point or in some way. When the volume is turned up, wouldn't it be great to have a system you can already rely on that you're familiar with? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And uh, one of the advantages we have to your point about getting to learn to use it really quick is we originally developed this focusing on low literacy communities. Mm-hmm. And 
with that in mind, we've always put a premium on making it as easy as possible to learn and understand. Lowest common so we denominator. Got, yes, exactly. So we got a real leg up on that. And so now when we meet uh, agencies, departments, or just responder groups that have experience already involved in emergency response of some type, they look at our platform and they get it. They just intuitively get it. Like, sure. oh yeah, this makes total sense. Sure. What we, what normally what they use is something called a computer-aided dispatch system, like a, a CAD. And what we've essentially done is really simplified a CAD and put it on your phone. And so anybody who's got a phone can start setting up their own communication systems. Thanks to the Cisco grant, we're, we're going to build that e- even more so. Got it. Uh, well, I'm, I'm excited to see what comes of that. Um, it's, it's super curious. Yeah. Yes. We're, <laughs> we're only a couple yeah. months away. We're, we're, we're excited and curious as well. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the reality here. Are we, are we already on the, the back foot when it comes to disaster relief? The, the San Juan mayor came out today and said they're fighting two disasters, really the hurricane and then the relief nightmare they've been dealing with ever since it. Yeah, so I think that looking at Puerto Rico is going to, that's going to be a story that we're going to hear a lot more regularly and frequently. Yeah. Sadly, that's, that's true. I think that there are, San Diego, I used to live in San Diego, California, and uh, San Diego is in a real tough spot where one bad hurricane and San Diego becomes essentially an island. Yeah, you know? it's pretty unbelievable. Though it's a part of the mainland, uh, the access to San Diego is just limited to a few roads. Mm -hmm. And if a bad earthquake were to happen or, you know, whatever the case, and those roads were taken out, then you're going to San Diego is going to be like Puerto Rico. It's going to be an island. Right. And And, and there's again, each place has its own complications. I mean, uh, you know, but Puerto Rico, that place has 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 been disaster waiting to happen and not their own fault, you know, because of, of their crazy statehood status or, or lack thereof for, for however many years. And, and the, I mean, you know, they were talking about bankruptcy before uh, this even happened. So, you know, uh, infrastructure wise, it, it was just the worst possible place for that to happen. And yet San Diego, while more well off, what happens to the naval base when that happens? You know, it's, it's in, it's incredible. Like you said, it can, it can literally become an island. Yeah, it, it can. Uh, things can change very quickly and very drastically. So the good thing is, in the U.S., there are a lot of different ways for people to get involved. You know, like I mentioned, the DMAT team, but that's a federal thing, and that's that's a little more. You're the um, Avengers, basically. Yeah, that's a little more particular. <laughs> but there are medical reserve corps. There's community emergency response cert teams. There's all sorts of things that people have, and even you know, especially when you get into rural areas. They don't have these formal organizations, but by virtue of living in a rural area, people understand we're on our own out here. We've got to rely on each other. Sure. So you get very tight knit community groups or just, you know, family and social bonds and very much in a good position to turn themselves into a self-sustaining response team that can help people who've been affected. So that's the good thing. People ask me all the time, well, what happens if the cell phone towers go down? The reality for us is... Well, we can't help you at all. You know, we yeah. need a mobile phone connection. Sure. We don't need internet, but we need a mobile phone connection. Uh, the good news is that they, I was reading a study that they said, you know, remember Katrina, it was something like, and this was well before cell phones had proliferated to the point that they are, but 
in Katrina, they lost like 80%, I think it was, of their cell phone uh, towers, and they were down for a long time. I read in Houston that they only lost, I think it was something like between 20 and 30% of their cell towers, Mm -hmm. and most of them were back up. I think it was within a week. My numbers aren't exact, but it was a huge change from Katrina uh, a little over 10 years ago. But, you know, on the other hand, and I don't know the statistics on Puerto Rico, um, but again, having just been down in in the Virgin Islands, both the British and the U.S., you know, their cell phone towers all went down for quite a while. and, And that made it incredibly difficult to organize anything, to get anything done, to find out, to, to even get word out to loved ones that you were still right. alive or what the condition of their homes were or, or, or things like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is there. So, so you were talking a little bit about the, the tight-knit organizations and, and all these different teams that are in the U.S. versus other places. Talk to us a little bit about the global roles of governmental verse, uh, response versus private or NGO responses. And, and, you know, feel free to use an example of either hypothetical or, or something like Puerto Rico or, or Costa Rica to sort of illustrate how the machine, and I, I know that this is probably asking for it, but a typical response, how that machine works, let's say hurricane. Oh, uh, outside of the United States. Yeah, let's talk. Um, about, and, and we've got, you know, we've got listeners in like 30 countries now. So, you know, while it's, it's heavily American, um, you know, we're lucky to be able to have what we have here. Uh, even if people refuse to pay for it. But, but yeah, talk to me about where it, uh, when it happens in somewhere like uh, Costa Rica. So th- that's, it's a difficult question because it all comes in so many different shapes and sizes. And, and the degree to which international NGOs get involved has very much to do with the amount of attention it gets from mainstream media, so to speak, if I'm allowed to use that term. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, the best example I can give is Haiti, which was, at the time, an anomaly, but is actually very much becoming the norm norm. for international response uh, to major catastrophic events. So in Haiti, well, there were so many problems. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not not any one smoking gun or one silver bullet, but I remember watching a, I was was sent uh, to Haiti on a team shortly after the earthquake, and one of the really big problems there was that right off the bat, uh, most of the UN agency, you know, most of the UN employees who were assigned to the Haiti mission were killed in the earthquake. The UN uh, offices collapsed, including the, the head of the mission. And I remember watching afterwards on a documentary about a guy who was who, the de facto, he became the head of this serve, you know, of, of the UN mission in Haiti because everybody above him had died. And he said, we had uh, a decision to make. We knew that the problems were so big that if we tried to set up a way to vet all of the NGOs and foreign governments that were coming in and try to make them register, we were going to have a huge bottleneck that was going to prevent much needed aid from getting to the people. So he said, what we decided was to basically lay down and let just open the borders up as much as as quickly as they could come in and let it go from there. And so there was a total lack at the outset, and some would argue for long after that, a total lack of coordination among the different international players. But I think that that kind of a thing is going to start becoming normal because, one, there's so much more uh, media out there. 
people are reporting locally, it's very easy to become a local reporter. So there's a lot more uh, media that these events are getting. But also, Haiti kind of, I don't know what the word I'm looking for necessarily is, but it it kind of validated, I guess you could say, the need for uh, these immediate response teams, right? There are a lot of people who can look at Haiti and say, look, all of the big agencies take way too long to get started. We just need people down there making things happen while they get their gears going. So we're going to have these small, compact teams that are going to get down, start delivering aid, and hopefully we'll be able to transition to the larger aid agencies when they come in with all of their supplies. Sure. Because the machine does take a while. I mean, and even in place, you know, I got down to Houston a few days after the storm, and I I have a bunch of little kids, so my house has been filled with diapers for six years uh, permanently, and my my contact at, at the relief shelter where they're using the big football stadium down there reliant and she said oh we've got about a million diapers coming but they won't be here for five days and my just immediate thought was we, what you, you need diapers How? you need diapers last night you know yeah. like it's it's incredible and and it's incredible like all these amazing companies and organizations just donated a million diapers which is amazing Damn. uh and, and great but five days i mean it's catastrophic and and for these children and their mothers and and it was incredible so i just tried to wipe as much as you can and as much as they were like oh hey we didn't know you were coming and this is the truck which is again like you said part of their organizational problem can often cause more trouble than it's worth but at the same time it felt like something that was the most specific applicable thing i knew that i could make a difference in when something had to hold the tide and that was in a place where I could just drive to. I could drive down to Dallas. But like you said, that doesn't happen. That doesn't exist in Costa Rica and Puerto Rico or these Central American countries or in yeah. Indonesia. It's very hit or miss. A lot of times these supplies do exist, but they are perhaps logically centered in the big cities, right? Sure. Uh, Costa Rica is, uh, you know, the capital of San Jose in the Central Valley. And so all of the resources, generally speaking, are centralized there. but there are huge swaths of the population that live in coastal areas that are very difficult to get to. And so, you know, it's like there's a need. Um, there is this balance where you need these small, compact response teams that can get out there quickly. But you also need to be able to track them and keep tabs on them, right. um, not just for transparency's sake, but also for any transition, you know, so that when the big guys come along, there's a handover, so to speak, right? Like on the ambulance, we hand the patient over to the doctor and the nurses and we give a report. Yep. There's a corollary to that with these small disaster response teams handing over uh, their operations to a larger uh, aid relief agency with much more capacity. So, and, and I don't know anybody who's really found it or I, don't, I haven't really seen where it's happened, though it certainly could have happened, but there's a balance between letting these kind of uh, small groups get in there and do their thing, but also trying to keep track of them and, and keep tabs on them. So they're not just out there footloose, fancy free doing whatever, you know? Yeah, um, sure. And uh, it's a challenge for all governments. I mean, I ended up living in Haiti for two years and uh, started working at different times with the ministry of health and talking with the ministers of, you know, the, 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 government officials working in the Ministry of Health in the immediate aftermath aftermath of the earthquake just sounded like an absolute 
nightmare scenario on top of the actual nightmare of the disaster. But it's like, you know, all of these government and non-governmental organizations are coming in with the best of intentions. And you have a Ministry of Health who, like the UN, lost a lot of their staff in the earthquake. They're, for all intents and purposes, uh, very much affected by the trauma of the disaster. And now, with very few resources, they have to be able to somehow try and organize and coordinate all of these very well-intentioned but very motivated uh, and and uh, proactive groups coming in wanting to help. And sure. so you can imagine right off the bat that people are like, oh, the Ministry of Health are telling us to slow down. They don't care about the people. And it's like, no, right. it's not that. They, it's not that they don't care about the people. It's not that they're corrupt. That certainly can happen. But sure. That's generally speaking, not the situation. It's a matter of capacity. How well can they coordinate uh, all of these foreign teams coming in and how effectively can they do it? And and how do you disperse them? How do you tell people where help sure. is needed? Sure. If you look at, again, the Haiti earthquake, right after the earthquake the, and for months afterwards, the vast majority of the aid didn't get very far away from the airport where everybody came in. Right. Right. <clears throat> And so, uh, and yet the epicenter of the earthquake was quite a ways outside of town. Uh, but those people didn't get a lot of the aid until much later, if, if ever, arguably. Uh, and that's because there was a lack of coordination. It just wasn't, the capacity wasn't there. So these kind of uh, problems are very common in, in all massive disasters. And I, I mean, in summary, I one time was at a conference and there was somebody speaking and was introduced as an expert in disaster response. And he got up and the first thing he says is, I politely decline the title of being an expert in disaster response because the reality is none of us have ever gotten it right. Right. And he said, that isn't because we're not trying. It's because these problems are so complex and they change from location to location that it's almost impossible to get it right. Sure. Are there, are there any specific executions from recent years that can serve as, uh, you know, the, the, the best practices? I think that instead of looking at best practices, I would, I would personally be looking more at who had the most valuable lessons learned. Sure. You know, yeah. What, what do we, what are the things we're getting better at that can be, again, knowing that every situation the terrain, the geography, the, the the governments, the the demographics, and the disaster itself are different and innumerable variables. Is there anything that can be translated that we've picked up on in the past few disasters? Yes, I think that uh, last year's hurricane season taught us a lot about the, and this is obviously the, this is exactly where we're focused. So I might be a bit biased, but, but no, please, uh, I think last year's hurricanes taught us a lot uh, about crowdsourcing help, about engaging the local community to help mm-hmm. and deliver aid. Mm-hmm. And I think that the professional emergency responders, you know, your, your trained professionals are very much acknowledging and becoming very open to finding ways to incorporate this type of community involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, Houston there, I've seen, been watching a lot about in Houston, how they are, the, the Houston Office of Emergency Management, they want to know, okay, when this happens again, how are we going to be able to better incorporate these volunteers, these spontaneous volunteers, how are we going to be able to manage them, coordinate them, and use them to their greatest impact? 
And I think that in years past, uh, that hasn't been the case. There's been a, a very much a professional class. And then how do we manage all of these spontaneous volunteers that want to do good, but don't have any experience, you know? And sure. I think that that kind of perspective is very much changing now and for the better. And it, it is very much because of technology. Mm-hmm. Are there, in your opinion, I guess, uh, are, are there specific groups or organizations that are doing really great jobs other than your own? And and, and I know <laughs> sometimes we hesitate to call out people doing right. a good job or... or a- or, or not so much, you know, like the controversy came out about, you know, the, the Red Cross uh, got yeah. really hammered about for their spending uh, over the past couple of decades and it flew under the radar a little bit. And now, of course, we've moved on. But it and we're moving towards the action steps here, which is these, these sort of things, these specifics are important to our listeners, by the way, you know, because they're these our listeners are activated and, and they want we want to make sure that they feel like their voices and their money and their time are being used in the most efficient manner and the most productive manner. But, you know, I, I guess speak to it as much as you're comfortable. I spend all of my time thinking about basically one thing. How do we get responders to people that need help and then get them to where they need to go, right? Mm-hmm. Pre-hospital, mm-hmm. what we call pre-hospital emergency care. Sure. That's, that's all I focus on. So I don't get too uh, much exposure to, you know, people doing like wash, you know, like water, sure. uh, sanitation, uh, security, that kind of stuff. And, sure. and I wouldn't even know much to say about what's good and what isn't. But the organizations that I am aware of in, in the, are largely in the realm that we are that I think do fantastic work uh, is one, Team Rubicon is fantastic. I think that they've got it okay. down to a level of organization and logistics that you only find in the military, you know, Uh, and that's because they are former military. So they bring all of that experience with them. I think there's another organization called impact Northwest. uh, And they do a lot in terms of helping local fire departments, local community response groups uh, in training and also in preparation so that when these things happen, they're ready for them. And, uh, I think that they do a great work there out of uh, Northwest Seattle. Those are the two that uh, stick out to me most. And that's because just who I'm familiar with. But then sure. I think that I followed a lot of these pop-up emergency response groups that happened, uh, like you were mentioning, in Harvey and Irma and Maria in Texas and in uh, Florida. And I think that I don't know how much they are on the road to formalizing and becoming an actual, like, uh, standalone organization, but I think that their experiences, uh, have a lot of lessons learned for other organizations or other communities that are, you know, uh, susceptible to hurricanes could learn from. And in fact, uh, on our website, we posted a blog about this, about how to develop an, a community emergency response team for the next hurricane. And, uh, five simple steps. And this is from our own experience, but also from, Uh, watching and learning and talking with these other groups that were doing it as well. And I think that there is a a template out there that Mm -hmm. is still in its early stages, but I think that uh, going to be a a way for these community uh, communities to organize, coordinate and respond to deliver aid as necessary, even if they didn't have the infrastructure in place beforehand, because really what we've done with beacon is, is to say, look, 
let's take the guesswork out of emergency response. If somebody needs help, we know there are five steps yep. that are needed every single time. Right. It doesn't matter if it's a car wreck or a woman in childbirth or somebody stuck on their roof after flooding. Sure. There are five steps. The method version of your technology, which is not dumbing it down, but dialing it down to its most fundamental pieces, which again, all of these things are liable to change and there's a million factors, but there has to be a, mo- a lowest common denominator that even providing just that blueprint must be yes. so helpful. So uh, please, please continue. Tell us those five steps. Right. So the five steps are uh, one, can you help? Mm-hmm. Two, did you find the patient? Three, do you need more resources? Mm-hmm. Four, are you transporting them? Five, did you get to the destination? Those five major steps, it doesn't matter whether, like I said, it's a car wreck or somebody stuck on a roof or a woman in childbirth. You've got to go through those same five steps to locate somebody, assess them, stabilize them, and if needed, transport them. And so if you can take the guesswork out of that, because a lot of people get worked up about, well, what if they've got this condition or what if they've got that problem? And it's like that, that's got very little to do with the logistics of getting to them and transporting them. Sure. That's, that's the medical part of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And if you're not a doctor, you're not a doctor. If you're not a nurse or a paramedic, that's whatever. If you have first aid though, then you can take that a long ways if you've got this framework to work with. So our job, you know, as, as being uh, involved in this and organizations working with communities to improve their uh, capabilities is to say, Let's take the guesswork out. And exactly like you said, let's get it down to its most fundamental steps. You know, we may not be able to address every single situation, but we can get a large majority of them if we create a a template for people to follow. Sure, sure, sure. It it just seems so helpful. And and like you said, from organizations that are trying to get started up to build something in a local community to people like the Cajun Navy swooping in. I mean, Jesus, you just text these five steps to people and just say, just follow these. Right. And at the very least, we'll be doing more good than harm, you know? Yes. Um, so what, what, uh, what are some actions that, you know, just normal citizens uh, should be taking to, to assist, no, knowing full well that, you know, they'll get it in the teeth themselves at some point? Um, you know, should, should we be volunteering or, or just donating money to groups like you guys? Well, we, we would never turn something like that down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 501c3 registered. Yes. Um, yep. Got it. Good. No, uh, honestly, when people ask what, what can we do, I think the most important thing, the most important first step that people can take is understand what you're at risk for. I mean, how many times are people like, whoa, we never knew that we lived in a flood zone and now our house right. is filled with water. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that stuff is out there, especially now in the digital age. Communities are getting much, much better about posting this stuff online, you know, like your local office of emergency management or the county, whatever it may be. Find out where are the flood zones. Find out who's in the path of a wildfire, who's more likely to get hit by a wildfire. You know, these kind of things to be aware of the risks. If you're aware of the risks, then you're going to start thinking about them more and you're going to start seeking solutions. Yeah. And, 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 you know, one of the things we've come down to a lot is as a citizen, try to get that information from your from your local and, and state governments. Uh, state's more likely to have it. Uh, and if your local government uh, doesn't have that or hasn't done those studies, ask why. Yeah. And if uh, if you don't like the answer, run for office and, and do it yourself. 
um, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's necessary at this point. Uh, you know, we had a long conversation with uh, Mayor Serge Dedina of Imperial Beach, California. It's 20,000 people, a little blue collar town. And, and they, you know, did some infrastructure oh, yeah. uh, studies and they were like, oh, look, we're fucked and we can't pay for it. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, from there, you, you look at, uh, you know, the reports that came out last year about how many um, American counties are, are in the floodplain in the middle of America uh, yeah. because of the river flooding. And it's like, look, it's not just the coast and hurricanes. It's not just tornadoes and wildfires. Um, and no. if, if you're, again, dialing it back piece by piece, like if your town or city or county is not prepared for it, uh, is is not planning for it, uh, or is not even acknowledged or or tried to source out what the ramifications are or or what the dangers are, then then take it upon yourself. Um, do do what you can do to to work within the community to do those things because the information, like you said, it's 2018. It's out there now. Yeah. Yes, that's interesting. You spoke with Imperial Beach because I used to work on AMR Unit 413, which was the Imperial Beach Ambulance. Whoa, and, shit. that's yeah. crazy. And in 2000. Nine, I want to say, or maybe 2010, I forget. But I remember we saw one of the first cases of swine flu that came across the border. We had no idea what it was. It was a young sure. girl. She's 13, 14 years old, went to bed the night before, pretty much in good shape, woke up, felt like she had a fever. And then within an hour, dropped to the ground and was having seizures. Jesus. And uh, totally unexpected. You know, where's this coming from? Sure. And lo and behold, uh, that was one of the precursors to one of the first cases of swine flu, the uh, H1N1, I think it was, right? Yeah, yeah. I believe yeah. so. Boy. And, you... But anyway, yeah, Imperial Beach, they've got, they've got all sorts of risks, uh, sure. not only because of the, like you said, the earthquake and because of the coastal area, but also because they're right along the border. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. And so just that awareness of what are we at risk for, uh, hopefully will set you on a trail to then find out, well, what hap- What do we do if this happens? And so if you find out what risks there are, the next thing to ask is, what has happened when this happened in the past? How did we respond sure. and what worked and what didn't? Sure. And going from there, uh, you're going to be in a lot better shape than most other communities. Sure. So, all right, let's dig in. And I also want to provide a little uh, boost to uh, organization Charity Navigator. Um, oh yeah, they, we talked they, about them. Which is a which is a nonprofit themselves. They do a really fantastic job of evaluating everything but the smallest groups. Um, and I think they've got to have two or three years of records to be considered by Charity Navigator, uh, maybe four, of of really rating these organizations and and how efficient and economical they are with every dollar that comes in, uh, where they spend it. Uh, all the reports are listed there. They give them a rating of uh, uh, up to four stars. Um, but I think people would be surprised to see the ratings of some of these big organizations. I think they'd be relieved to see the ratings of some of them. But they also do a really good job of of breaking these things down into categories and saying, "Hey, these are these are the these are the best places to spend your money for this sort of thing." Uh, where they're everything from infectious disease to pediatric cancer to to flooding relief. So data is is good and helpful. And and um, you know if. If that's your form of action, uh, is clicking on something from your computer, well, we'll take it. Again, yeah. all we're trying to do is get people to 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 give a shit. Most of our listeners already do. That's why they're here. Um, but to take some action. Um, so on that note, what should people be doing with their vote specifically? Because, again, we're not doomed. 
Um, but this is all very real and, and no one's going to escape untouched, right? We're, we're 30 to 40 years behind these emissions and the action we're taking is working and it's helping, but we need more of it um, on the prevention side, mitigation and reaction uh, like you do, because reacting, well, I guess building an emergency medical services system is sort of a precursor to reacting. Yeah. It enables you to be able to react but it is part of adaptation, and that's what we're talking about now. So, so again, what, what should people be doing with their vote? What questions uh, should they be asking of the representatives, you know, both locally and federally? And, and keep in mind that we've got listeners in 30 countries now. I think that, yes, politicians and elected representatives are important. And I think that they're the end goal because they're the ones who control the purse strings. Uh, but I think that before going to them, I think that it, I would always recommend go and talk to the local fire chief, go and talk to the local ambulance director, go and talk to the local police chief and say, what keeps you up at night? You know, and and how could that be changed through whether it's legislation or an election, whatever it may be, uh, because honestly, there are very few politicians out there who come to the office with a lot of experience in disaster response. Sure. And, and that's a good thing. Honestly, that's a good thing because a lot of the countries that we work in, in I've seen it time and time again that there's a, a catastrophe, something really bad happens, and the whole country expects the president to start calling the shots. Right. Right. And it's like, no, 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 no. In the US, that's where we have the head of FEMA or we have whoever it may be. You know, we have something called incident command structure, uh, incident command system, which is protocols on how we handle disasters and as they grow in complexity, right? So things change. Things always change. You got to scale up or you got to scale down, but things don't ever stay the same. So talking to uh, the, the, the heads of your local departments are going to give you all the information you need to know about how your community is prepared for when these things happen. Um, and then with that information is, you know, then it's like, well, you should have a pretty good idea of where to go from there. But there is a lot of sensationalism that goes on, understandably, during disasters by the media. You know, you always hear like in Haiti was a great example. There was all this talk of looting and all this stuff. And it wasn't going on except where the TV cameras were, you know, like it was almost like they were riling them up. Right. Right. So, you know, you, you, you can only see what their cameras show you. So talking to the local uh, department heads, you know, the fire department, the police department, the ambulance service, whoever it may be. Sure, the people doing um, it every day and who inherently know what the strengths and weaknesses are and how those would be affected when, like you said, the volume gets turned up. Exactly. So that's that's what I would recommend. If you're, le- if you're looking to become politically yeah. active about preparedness and response, uh, I would first talk to the people who know most about it. Sure. And then, because honestly... Whoever is elected, the mayor, the councilman, selectman, selectman, whoever it may be, they're going to turn around and talk to these guys, too, to get advice on where to go next. So, you know, it's best to go to the source. And and that's a hell of a thing to bring into a city council meeting as a public, as a private citizen, is to be able to say, you know, I've got this firsthand information. It's not a bunch of statistics off my fucking MacBook. Yeah, Um, exactly. um, Awesome. I, I really do appreciate that perspective. And I think the more we can enable that in community interaction on that front the better. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, so we're getting close to time here, Jason, and we obviously can't thank you enough uh, for being here, man. Yeah. Um, can can we ask who else uh, do you think we should talk to? There are it, lots of people. Any, well, anybody what would you like to talk about? Well, you know, again, what we like to talk about is, uh, as we say, the, the conversation's most vital to our survival as a species, but what it comes down to is the scientists, engineers, uh, doctors, even journalists. Yeah. Shit, man, we talked to a reverend. Um, these people who are uh, the ones on the ground addressing you know, vital topics like these and really working at it. And that can help, help us formulate action steps for our listeners to be able to take both with their voice and their vote and their money and their, their time. Yeah. Um, Okay. So so those people ask like you. So the, yeah, thanks. The three people that I could directly introduce you to would be one, uh, my former boss and now the chief of staff, for the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University. He's a guy named Jeff Schlegelmilch, and he actually has a podcast you, called Disaster Politics. You're going to need to spell that. Yeah. J-E-S-F or is it G-E-O? S-H-L-E-G-E-L-M-I-L-C-H. Holy cow. We'll put that in the show notes, assuming Brian spelled it correctly. I did not. Yeah. So <laughs> he actually does a podcast, too, called Disaster Politics. So oh, cool. I think you have a lot to talk about. Sure. The other person I would recommend is he's called the DMAT commander. He's a, he's the head of my DMAT team out of San Diego. And this guy has been deployed to disasters for the past 30 years. I mean, and, and not only deployed, but has been in charge of managing huge teams in them. Um, and he's just got, you know, a college course worth of perspective sure. and experience. Sure. His name is uh, Dr. Jake Jacoby. J-A-C-O-B-Y. He's uh, now retired, but an emergency physician at UC San Diego. Fantastic experience. We'll talk. Has just a lot of great insights. And then the third person I would suggest is the executive director of this organization I mentioned called Impact Northwest. E-M-P-A-C-T Northwest. Uh, his name is Jake Gillanders, G-I-L-L-A-N-D-E-R-S. Okay. And uh, there are three very different perspectives. Jeff is policy, very, very good on policy and the politics of disaster. Jake Jacoby is very much uh, federal disaster response and large teams, you know, like large deployments. And then Jake is the small, uh, compact, get in early assessment and immediate relief team. All the pieces of the puzzle, theoretically. Theoretically, yeah. Right. That's awesome. That's, yeah, thanks. We, we would love those introductions. Um, all right. So let's summarize. Uh, and again, there's a lot to do, but let's summarize most specifically what our listeners and sort of action takers in general can do. Um, number one is, again, this is. Everything is going to happen everywhere. We're all connected. No one's going to remain untouched by this stuff. You know, be prepared to help with your own two hands and and know those five steps uh, that you described, whether you are a trained emergency responder or you're trying to get uh, your uncle off a roof or your neighbor or just someone else who who needs it. Um, Get the people off the roofs. Get the people off. Right. Uh, And we will put all that stuff in the show notes and maybe we'll make a cool little card that's downloadable. Yeah. Um, uh, number two, just understand what you're at risk for. 
you know, knowledge is, is helpful, whether it's knowing a fire escape route or your infectious disease or uh, flooding areas, whatever the issue is. And I guess that's related to number three, which is if you want to take political action, first talk to the people who know it best, your local fire chiefs, ambulance directors, police chiefs, and ask what keeps you up at night, the strengths and weaknesses of your locality. And then uh, theorize um, how can that be changed through local elections? How can those things be be either built upon or or rectified however much we're able to? You can't change your geography much, but maybe you can say stop building on the wetlands, for example. Um, does, that, uh-huh. does that seem like uh, sort of the three major steps? Yeah, I feel it sounds very good to me. I, I definitely recommend all of those. Awesome. Awesome. I, I already did, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and you would again. Um, I'll, all right, Jason. I'll, I'll second my recommendation. <laughs> we have, uh, we do have uh, just the last few questions uh, for you that we ask everyone on the show. Um, uh, lightning round. So uh, uh, are you ready? Lightning round. Yep. Yeah, Uh-oh. so be quick. Lightning round. And of course, the first one I'm realizing is just not <laughs> applicable to lightning round. It's a little more meta than the, than the last two, certainly. Uh, Jason, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful for others? Oh, wow. I think the first time I rode along with the fire department of New York, the New York fire department as a, as a EMT uh, basic, I had to do my ride-alongs to finish the course. And I remember uh, going down to what was then Our Lady of Mercy in the South Bronx, or no, it was the North Bronx, and riding along with them and being like, wow, these guys are actually having an impact on people's lives directly. And that was really invigorating. You know, that really was, gave you a charge like, wow, you know, I can make a difference. Sure. So I think that was probably it. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it is an incredibly direct impact. Can't imagine what that would have been like. All right. The actual lightning round. Uh, lightning round. Go. Uh, how do you consume the news, Jason? On my iPhone, I go directly to, I have, I was just organizing my favorites last night, about 15, 20 different uh, websites that I'll go to for news. Please don't say Facebook. (laughs) Number one, Facebook. Number two, Facebook. (laughs) Nope. Safari browser. (laughs) Awesome. All right. If you could Amazon Prime one book to President Trump, what would it be? The Little Prince. You know what? Ah. That's awesome because A, my favorite book, and two, you're the second person to recommend it. I was going to say, I thought we heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Huh. Yeah. It is I, such it's, a fundamental book. It's short, too. <laughs> Got lots of pictures. Get a quick jab in there. Right. That's usually the first thing people say is, wait, is he going to read that? Is, uh, does he read? That's awesome. Um, well, listen, Jason, this has been tremendous, man. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, where can our listeners uh, follow you online? So uh, our website, trekmedics, T-R-E-K-M-E-D-I-C-S dot O-R-G. Okay. It's two words, but we spell it like one for the website. Okay. Um, and then uh, also they can sign up for our newsletter, follow us on Facebook or Instagram, and sometimes Twitter, but not often. Do you do you uh, do you have your IG and or your Instagram and Twitter handle? It's all Trek Medics T R E K N E D I C S for for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Awesome, great, that's awesome. Ours on Twitter is important, not imp, because of the character limit, and it drives me crazy every day of my life. So <laughs> good for you, um, <laughs> Jason. Man, 
thank you so much for your time today and and Jesus man for all that you do. I'm I'm glad you took that first ride uh, with the uh with the NYFD and and decided to translate that into helping folks that don't have systems like that and you're building them from the ground up. That is pretty incredible, man. Thank you very much. Pretty and awesome. thank you for the opportunity to uh, share with you. I love what you guys are doing and I I was going through your past episodes. You've got some really impressive uh guests that I normally wouldn't have been exposed to. So thanks for hunting these people out. And hopefully uh, I can help set you up with a couple others. Awesome, man. Yeah, we'll Uh, take those introductions. Well, thanks so much. um, And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Hopefully you find some time to surf down there. All right. Yeah, that's right. Thanks a lot. All right, take care. Thanks to both of you. Have a good one. See you later, Jason. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. So weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally... Most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.